Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for joining me for today's adventure. Today, I have the pleasure to talk with Ginny Callahan. And Ginny runs Sea Kayak Baja, Mexico. And today, she's going to share some of her experiences from Baja. We'll also talk about the South Pacific, towing a sailboat, kayak sailing, pyrosomes, and more. So enjoy today's episode with Ginny Callahan. Hi, Ginny. Welcome to Paddling the Blue today. Thanks, John. It's great to be here chatting with you. Yeah, it's been a long time. We've been uh, working, to get, working to get in touch with each other here for quite a while. I'm glad it finally lined up. Me too. Hopefully it's worth the wait. Oh, absolutely. So tell us about yeah. your history as a paddler and as a coach. It goes way back to last century. <laughs> <laughs> I sound old, huh? <laughs> um, I started as a summer camp. I did all the horsemanship there was to do and then branched out into canoeing and then went on canoe trips and grew up and took the the teenage girls out on the canoe trips as a counselor, never realizing it might be a, a lifestyle. Moved across the country to the Pacific coast, got myself a canoe, put it in the Pacific Ocean, realized that there might be better craft, um, graduated to a surfboard, and then uh, a few years later had an invitation to drive a kayak guide to Mexico because he did not have a vehicle and tag along on some kayak trips. Um, with the small caveat that I needed to learn to paddle a kayak first. That was 98, and I've been coming back to Baja ever since. 14 years ago, I started my own company, Sea Kayak Baja Mexico, and it's uh, kind of slowly taken over my life in a delightful way. Now, you uh, you started on the East Coast then? Um, yeah, I grew up uh, around New York City and went to summer camp in the Adirondacks and canoed around the Ad- Adirondacks. And then when I graduated, I put everything I owned in the back of a pickup truck and moved west. All right. Now, and you split, did you split your time between Pacific Northwest and Baja for a while then? I did, yeah. Once I started coming to Baja, I came every winter, first working for another company for about 10 years, guiding on the lower Columbia River, eventually starting my own company there, then starting a farm called Slow Boat Farm, where we hosted the lower Columbia Kayak Roundup for five years. And then every winter coming down to Baja. Um, and then the winters kept getting, <laughs> taking up more and more of the year uh, until during COVID, I just didn't leave and realized that I could, could actually survive summers down here by being underwater a lot and then sold the farm. And I'm now here in Mexico full time. That's fantastic. So we've talked a little bit um, off air about some of the neat things uh, that happened down in Baja, Mexico. So I won't ask the question, what is it that drew you there? Uh, because you've already told me some of that. And I'll let you uh, share that with our listeners as we go forward here. So one of uh, we're here to talk a little bit about some adventures. And your adventures seem to center around places without bears, bugs, or ice. <laughs> so <laughs> let's talk about a couple of those. Um, one I'm a of, true wimp. <laughs> <laughs> nothing wrong with that. You've got heat, right? Um, <laughs> one of your more recent adventures was a short paddle across the Sea of Cortez, literally right from your front yard, so you didn't have to travel very far. So tell us about that trip. Yeah, it was a sort of a COVID-inspired adventure. COVID hit us pretty hard, if, if I could go there for just a moment. You know, of course, we're recreation <laughs> and international-based uh, industry, yeah. and we went from like full peak season to zero in the span of two weeks. Uh, in March of, was it 2020? Yeah. 
my years start getting mixed up. Um, <laughs> it's a year that we want to forget. On a personal scale, <laughs> yeah, yeah, a year I really like to forget because on a personal scale, that was also the year um, of divorce. Like mm. that was this in the same two weeks. Oh no! Um, it's like, oh uh, yeah, let's uh, call this marriage thing off. So kind of the two things I based my like personal meaning and security on just went away at the same time. So it took a couple of months to get the company kind of stable and mothballed for what we thought would be several months. And I just took off over the horizon with a, a modified desalinator and a kayak, um, way too much food and some fish hooks, <laughs> and did two things I've always wanted to do, which is just wander around for at least a month on my own and visit some remote islands that I hadn't been to. That's cool. Tell us about that. So myself and one of the guides... There are a couple of people um, with Sikai Baja who, when COVID hit, um, and I, I just I had to half everybody's paid and just try to keep people supported with something, um, but they didn't have enough money to pay uh, rent. So we all moved onto the base and became our little COVID family. The two of them and myself would sneak out sometimes, like at four o'clock in the morning, <laughs> dodging the, the uh, quarantine cops. And just paddle straight, the, the nine miles straight out to Carmen Island and either hang out at a beach we dubbed Quarantine Beach or do some other paddling. So my month-long solo, I slipped out with Jorge, who wanted to paddle around Carmen Island. And we crossed together, went down to the tip of the island, and then I just kept going. And he went around the island and back to town. So yeah, it was uh, a particularly large kayak. It, it took a Romani XL because it had enough space in the cockpit to modify... A desalinator is the catadine, the, the kind you hand pump. Mm -hmm. But a friend of mine helped me modify it to the, the bar. Instead of having the lever at one end, it was connected at the middle with levers on both sides that then became the foot pedals. And the desalinator is mounted under the deck of the boat. So I could clip off the pedals so that they were solid pedals, or I could release the clips. And as I was paddling, I could pedal the desalinator unit and you know, the filter would come out of the water and go through the unit and fill a water bag in the cockpit with me. And I could make a couple of days worth of water pretty easily in a few hours of paddling. That's rather brilliant. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I dreamed of it. And then uh, Tony, a paddler, happened to stop by our store one day, and he actually had built one. He's an engineer in Southern California. He's one of the people that would be awesome to interview. So I said, hey, take me to your desalinator. <laughs> so he showed it to me. And he wanders the Sea of Cortez with these incredible cameras and documents, uh, wildlife, and just wanders around. So he made, he and I uh, made a couple of those for our kayaks. Um, and it just, it's a really cool way to disappear over the horizon and not need to get water resupplied to you in, in arid areas. So now that was a, there was a month long trip wrapped in there and then a solo across the uh, the Sea of Cortez. Is that right? Kind of a combination of yeah, the two? So yeah, so the, yeah, the month-long trip was with the desalinator and um, just went out to some remote islands and taking some pictures and writing and observing nature. And, um, there's a lot of stories wrapped up in that one. But when I came back, I realized I was not ready for um, life, like social life just yet, and needed something to keep pulling me forward. And not just me, but my paddling team as well. It was still COVID time. We still didn't have work. We wanted to get on the water, keep in practice, and just have some sort of hope to pull us forward. And I had a friend who has a sail, had a sailboat 
in San Carlos, which is in the northern, you know, mid to northern Sea of Cortez on the mainland side, whereas you know, Baja, I'm on the, the other side. And I asked if I could have a ride home if I managed to paddle over there with my kayak. And he said, sure. So I said, okay, team, let's do this. Let's leave from our front doorstep as we've been paddling for the COVID time. <laughs> and we'll paddle up the Baja Peninsula uh, about 150 miles together. And then we'll have some of our crew come, come pick you guys up and you'll drive back to Loretto and I'll paddle across to my friend at the sailboat. So five of us trained up and headed up the coast. Uh, we got three days up and then the weather turned with the first nortes of the season. The nortes are a multi-day north wind that just howls hmm. for multiple days. Um, uh, so we turned around and we hoisted our sails and we sailed back to Loretto. And then three of us got a ride up to a town that was would have been our destination, uh, Santa Rosalia. From there, we paddled the nine miles out to Isla San Marcos. And then there's 15 more miles to Isla Tortugas, which is a fairly recent volcano, very rugged. All the research I had done said there was no landing on this island. It was just too rocky and too steep. Google Earth didn't give any hope. Um, some people I know had paddled there, tried to land and turned around and come back. So we didn't have too much hope. Um, but if we could land there, my crossing would be 55 nautical miles. And if I couldn't, it would be longer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's 50 miles longer. So we left San Marcos early in the morning, the three of us in the dark, paddling towards Tortugas, not knowing if it would be a 15-mile paddle or for them might be a 35-mile paddle after scouting the island and then coming back. And me not knowing if it would be a crossing all the way or I'd have a little um, chance to sleep. But between the three of us, we managed to get our, our kayaks up on this beach whose sand grains consisted of boulders about two feet across. <laughs> um, it, it was kind of fun trying to find a place to, to sleep because there was no place that wasn't covered in boulders. Um, <laughs> Jorge found the lid to an old freezer that was actually our kitchen and then his his bed Ruben crawled on top of a large boulder with a divot on the top and there was a little cave with a ledge right up against the ceiling that was almost as big as a thermarest and that was my ledge so we slept there and I launched from there with Jorge's help at midnight and paddled towards San Carlos and got there in time for dinner 18 hours and 55 nautical miles later. Uh, it was a solo crossing. It started so calm, I could literally see Orion, the full constellation, reflected in the water. Oh, wow. And the wind came up, and I ended up you know, kind of uh, like close hauled, paddling at an angle against the wind. All right. Uh, but with the sail helping, um, went to an island called. San Pedro Nolasco, which again, all research pointed to not being able to land on the island. And sure enough, it was vertical walls and some sea caves. The sea caves were nice because they gave some shade that I could pull into and uh, hop out of my kayak and have a snack and floating in the water in the shade. Um, did a little bit of snorkeling tied to my kayak there, <laughs> just, cause, just to say I could uh, to stretch out a little bit. <laughs> and then paddled the last nine miles to the coast uh, met up with my sailing friend and uh, paddled to the the land there and then got aboard the sailboat and 
uh, took a few days to sail back to Loretto from there. What a neat trip. Yeah. So is it true that the only charts that you had of the area were from 1875? <laughs> um, yeah, that's the most recent survey. <laughs> we've actually, because of the lack of de detailed charts, we've created our own maps, satellite image-based maps. Uh, some of your listeners might be familiar with Dave Eckhart's guide, um, sea kayak guide, Baja sea kayak guide, something like that. Um, he, he's passed away and the book is out of print, but he had the brilliant idea of using satellite images and putting waypoints and descriptions on that. And then just expanding on, on his idea, uh, we've been making laminated maps based on the satellite image of the Loretto area for our trips. Uh, and when we do some more remote things, we'll just take Google Earth, print it out, um, and go from there. So in 147 years, no one's chosen to make another another chart. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's GPS now. Yeah, all right. <laughs> yeah, it's not a big commercial route, and uh, you know, I don't think um, countries invest too much in navigational exploration for kayakers. <laughs> <laughs> so what were some of the most glorious moments of that trip? The crossing? Yeah. Well... There were a lot of glorious moments. I think my very favorite was the landing. I pulled into this cove. So I met up um, with Mike on Compass Rose, my, my sailing friend, about a, a mile outside of the cove. And we sailed and paddled side by side, just chatting into the cove. And he went to anchor and I went to touch land, just to say I touched land. Mm -hmm. So I paddled over, stood up, took a few pictures. And there was another sailboat in the cove that sailor jumped into his dinghy and motored over because I had my little sail on the boat. He said, oh, I've never seen a sail in a kayak. Tell me about that. That's really cool. Where'd you come from? And I had to <laughs> grin and just said, Santa Rosalia, which of course is on the other side of the Sea of Cortez. And he just stopped. He goes, yeah, I mean, his expression was, was absolutely worth <laughs> paddling across because sailors know that that can be a pretty beefy crossing in a sailboat. Um, so yeah, it was an accomplishment. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah. So what, uh, what, what scared you most? I know a lot of people are nervous about paddling at night, but I did, I trained a lot at night. So I was quite comfortable in the crossing. I, I was really comfortable and about every hour, uh, jump in the water. I mean, it's Baja. You're jumping in to cool off, to stretch, to have a bathroom break if you need it. It helps you just keep going. I don't know if I could do a crossing like that in a dry suit. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't know how to manage myself. <laughs> but I think in the training, there were two times that I was scared. And I had set up several months before. And this is part of how it pulled me forward. So I said, okay, that it could end up being like a 65, 70, 80-mile crossing. I'm not quite sure. So I mean, I've got a pretty good 15 nautical mile baseline. So every, every week, I'll go out and do five more miles without touching land within a day. So built up one week 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50, up to 50. And sometimes I would go the evening before, camp out, and then paddle my long day back to Loretto. Early one morning I left in the dark from a place north of Loretto and was gonna head out, I think it was my 45 mile day on a long <laughs> crossing to the far tip of Carmen Island. And for some reason, in the dark, this rocky coast where the waves were crashing on the rocks felt like security. I'd known the coast. And in the dark, I needed to angle off and head 
towards that 30-something mile away point in the distance, which I couldn't quite see in the dark. And I was having a hard time doing it. And logically, it's like, Ginny, the, the coast next to you is more hazardous than the open water because <laughs> you could crash into rocks. <laughs> so just go. But it's something, yeah, something's feeling nervous. And finally, I'm like, okay, I started angling away from the coast. And just when I finally had the guts to start doing it, this pot of dolphins came by in the dark and just push, 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 leaping. And it suddenly the mood changed. It just felt like an encouragement. Like, yes, I can do this. And off I went. So there they were swimming um, with you? Yeah, well, they were crossing my path, but um, I bumped into a number of pods of dolphins through the, the time of training. Huh. Um, and it's, it's spectacular to hear them in the night. And even if they're close enough to see them going through the bioluminescence in the water, it's such a treat. Do they stay never, with you? That never gets old. Yeah, I bet. Do they stay with you? Uh, that time, no. In a previous crossing to Carmen, I have had them stay with me for the entire second half of a nine-mile crossing until I could hear the waves lapping on the far shore. Yeah, that was that was downright spiritual. I bet. But the other scary time was actually the same coast, a little further south. North, I was north of Loretto, but uh, closer to Loretto. I was paddling along. I was nearing the hour mark when I could jump into the water and cool off. And I kept hearing the splash behind me and look back and just see nothing but you know, turbulent water. And this flash kept getting closer. Like every few minutes, it just whoosh. And uh, it was nearing the time to jump in the water and cool off. And I was looking forward to that bathroom break. And all of a sudden, something hit the back of the kayak from underneath hard enough to, sh- I had the skeg down a little bit, to shove the skeg in and move the kayak sideways. And that's kind of shark-like behavior. There are <laughs> sharks in the Sea of Cortez. They don't tend to bother you, and that's the only time. It didn't sound like a sea lion because it wasn't breathing. Um, but I didn't jump into the water. <laughs> <laughs> I kept paddling. <laughs> Did you ever find out what it was? No. Oh. No, it's the only time I've ever had an experience like that in the Sea of Cortez. Oh, the mystery's killing me. I know, I do. <laughs> <laughs> As a speaking of mystery on another long crossing, I stopped to molest a pyrosome. I didn't know what a pyrosome was. I thought it was a plastic bag and I was trying to save it from the sea. And it didn't act like a plastic bag when I tried to lift it with my paddle. So I looked closer and it was a sheet of, you know, it looked like plastic, maybe three feet across. And I took pictures and like macro of the texture of it and then put it on Facebook. Some days later, somebody said, oh, yeah, that's a pyrosome. I looked it up. It's a, a jelly-like creature. It's kind of like a fabric of creature that glows at night. It's bioluminescent and pyro coming from fire. You know, they, they get up to several meters long. So I, I tickled a small one out there. <laughs> never seen one since. Well, I just learned something new. I've never heard of a pyrosome either. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. So, so with this being in your front yard and your history of adventure, why did it take so long to do this crossing? I had started to train up to do it before uh, when my, my former husband had a, his sailboat over in Wymas, but I hadn't quite gotten to the, the mileage that I'd wanted to do, and he was running out of time a little bit. So I was still working here in Loretto and just training up when I could, but time was getting short to leave to cross the South Pacific. Um, and he said, hey, I just need your help. Get on a plane. It's a lot faster. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. I didn't cross at that time. That was several years ago. Uh-huh. Um, so the dream, I just kind of sat there for a while. And uh, the logistics of it, like getting back, <laughs> makes it a little difficult. Yeah. 
You just mentioned another trip. A few years back, you crossed uh, another body of water with a, a 36-foot shuttle vehicle. So <laughs> That's a great way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> Could you tell us about the Misty adventure? Yeah, absolutely. So it was here in Baja that I met Henrik. We adventured together for about 10 years, and we were married for the last few. And when we met, his, his dream was to sail across the Pacific. He was from Sweden, and he bought a boat in Port Townsend, Washington, sailed it up to Alaska and down uh, through the Inside Passage in little sections. He would work and save up some money and come and modify the boat. He's a welder, so the boat wasn't just his shuttle vehicle. It was his home and his art project. When I met him down in the Sea of Cortez, he was headed up to Guaymas to put the boat up, go work, come back, modify a few things. And as sailors often say, oh, just two weeks in the boatyard, we'll be gone. <laughs> two years later, we um, left for <laughs> with two kayaks on board to cross the South Pacific. And that was, that was a tremendous adventure. I'll bet. How, yeah. long, how long did that trip uh, run? How many months was that? It's 10 years ago now. So, wow. Um, we left in March or April, and we got to New Zealand in, it was November, and we left from, from Baja, so the two kayaks, he, he made these custom brackets to hold the kayaks on the deck, and then the, the rowing dinghy was in the middle, and we launched from, well, we left from Mexico at Cabo, the tip of the Baja Peninsula, and it was a month before we saw land again. So there's the, the trade winds that move the currents west, uh, just north of the equator, and then there's an area called the, the doldrums where there's not much wind, there's still a little bit of current. Um, and there's actually a strip of current that runs counter to the trade wind current. And you wouldn't believe this, but in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, there's an eddy line between the two currents. And it passed too fast to get a picture of, but we were sailing along, um, wind and current going with us, and I look out there, and the texture, there's like a line and the texture of wind against tide, and sure enough, that was the countercurrent. We crossed into it, the wind died, and we drifted 17 miles back east during the night. Wow. In the morning, we found some wind and moved on, but there were little pockets getting through that zone uh, as we angled southward where there was just no wind and the sea was kind of like mashed potatoes it was just lumpy in every which direction in one of those sections oh yeah, and you could see like thunderstorms all around you on the horizon um, in one of those sections i unstrapped my kayak and chucked it in the water and paddled circles around the sailboat <laughs> <laughs> and the the dorado the dolphin fish yeah that we were sometimes catching on our line they were circling the boat, and when I put my kayak in the water, they started checking out the kayak. And when I separate from the, the sailboat, the Dorado would just swim around the kayak. I actually flipped over with my mask and just watched them take turns swimming at the kayak. But when I got near the boat, they wouldn't swim between me and the boat. It was like, hey, this, this strange creature we've been following had a baby. Don't get between the, the mom and its baby. Um, <laughs> I remember paddling confidently away from the sailboat, thinking, yes, I'm in my kayak in the middle of the ocean. I'm more than a thousand miles from land in any direction. And then I turned around and looked at this little sailboat that I'd left in the distance. And this is incredible feeling of insecurity. Like, 
I'm all alone. <laughs> <laughs> and a little chunk of bobbing steel. I don't, steel's not even supposed to float. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know how it could feel like security, but it was a, an amusing moment. <laughs> and it, it had been my, one of my um, strange kayaking fantasies to tow Misty, the sailboat, through the doldrums with a kayak. All right. And? So I hooked up my tow belt. And, you know, that tow belt has a little bit of bungee in it. So I paddle to the end of that tow line, and that bungee gives a little stretch, and then it contracts again, and then suddenly you're back surfing on some lump of sea towards 10 tons of steel, um, <laughs> <laughs> with the captain laughing maniacally from the bowsprit. <laughs> <laughs> Doing this over and over, horizontal bungee jumping, finally got the boat turned to the direction we wanted to go. I'm plugging away, horizontal bungee jumping, trying to pull the boat bit by bit. And then Henrik's back there looking at the um, the GPS, which doesn't register less than five knots. And he's huh. hollering out our speed. Zero. <laughs> Zero. Oh, half a knot. Zero. <laughs> it's a little demoralizing. But you got it to move. I did. I was quite proud of myself. <laughs> yeah, that's a win. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's full of adventures like that. Mid mid ocean adventures and some uh, remote Pacific Island adventures. All right. Well, tell fun. us about some of the people that you met along the way on that trip. Mostly I remember in New Zealand, because I wished, I wished, I wish I spoke French in South Polynesia or, or French Polynesia. Although there was one in Tahiti. Uh, we stopped at um, the, the big island of Tahiti and anchored. Oh, around the west side, like inside the reef, there's a, a reef break where uh, everybody went to surf. Stand-up paddleboard surfers, outriggers, and a lone sea kayaker. And we all had kind of our places, like the surfers are right in close towards the break, and the outriggers and me were a little bit over more towards the shoulder. And just a friendly, friendly vibe. Uh, at that point, I had learned five words of the Tahitian Polynesian language. This is an interesting sidebar. But um, studying how the movement of people across the South Pacific language is one of the ways that they study the movement of people. Ah. And hello in Hawaiian is aloha. Mm -hmm. In the Marquesas, it's kaoha. And in Tahiti, it's... Uh, I'm starting to forget the nuances because it's 10 years ago. But they're very similar sounds. Interesting. So I could say in, in Tahitian, hello, kayak. Awesome. It's <laughs> kaoha. <laughs> va'a is, is boat, basically. Okay. It can be different kinds of boat, but va'a. And my tairola. That's awesome. <laughs> and uh, that's evidently that's all the words that you need while you're surfing. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and a remote break with outrigger canoes. And I uh, met one of the um, outrigger paddlers who was really interested in the kayak, and I was interested in the outrigger, so I paddled into the reef and swapped boats having those three words in common. So before swapping, I, I demonstrated a role in the sea kayak and his eyes kind of popped out and he points to his boat and he goes, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I wasn't allowed to roll the outrigger, but um, you know, just to paddle a little bit because he was, you know, how do you stay balanced? With the through sign language, we tried to communicate a little bit. Yeah. And he's you know, showing instability. And I'm like, yeah, it's like in your hips. You can figure it out. <laughs> Did he give it a try? That was fun. Yeah, yeah. We swapped boats, and he paddled a little bit. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> All right. And I paddled the outrigger. And, and actually, some of the guys surfing the outriggers 
to, to ride the wave better, once they get going, they'll edge the outrigger just enough to get the, the ama, the float, out of the water so it doesn't slow them down. Wow. And an outrigger without the outrigger yeah. is super unbolted. That's a really fine line of balance. And a few of them did flip over. Uh, they flip it back and they have little um, foot pumps and they pump the boat out. You're right. That's a fine line you're, you're riding yeah. at that point. All right, so just one more question then about uh, about the Misty Adventure. How sure. did you get back? <laughs> I would love to say that I paddled back, but that wouldn't <laughs> be the, <laughs> the real truth. <laughs> For a few years, we used the, the sailboat and the kayaks in New Zealand as a, an excuse to go visit in New Zealand and travel and run some trips over there. Uh, but eventually, we sold the sailboat, and or Henrik sold the sailboat, and we sold our, our kayaks. All right. And... Um, Flew back on an airplane like like most human beings. All right. <laughs> well, it was a good uh, good reason to be there for a few years. So. Yeah, yeah, it was a great adventure. I, I really miss the people who we met and the, the kayaking adventures over there. Someday I hope to get back. Yeah, you mentioned a sail. Um, you said, and I, I know you frequently use a sail on your kayak, and it's not really a widely used tool, at least in, in that many people that I've talked to so far. Um, you, in fact, you may be the first guest that I've talked to so far who frequently does use one. What are some of the pros and cons of using a sail? The power of the wind is a really big one, uh, that being the, sort of the main point uh, of the sail. Um, when the wind is strong, you can go significantly faster, especially if you're going downwind, you can catch um, surf rides without even having to paddle super hard to catch them, which is a great benefit. Even with the wind coming from the side or coming from an angle from the front uh, with those sails that that we've got with the, the mast and the sail, you can gain energy from the wind. The boat will feel lighter, even though you're still paddling a little angle against the wind. So even if the wind isn't super strong, like if it's about 10, 12 knots, the boat, the loaded boat will feel lighter. And when you're traveling miles and days, having expended less energy to get where you're going, by the end of the day, you've got a little bit more energy for exploring or cooking or relaxing. Uh, that always feels really good. It also helps for visibility. Sails can be colorful, and certainly they're higher than than you are. Uh, it makes really cool photos when you've got a group with a bunch of colorful sails going across the horizon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How about um, any, any complications or risks? There's definitely a learning curve. Yeah. Um, with the sail. There's a couple more lines on the boat. There's the mast itself. Even when the sail is stowed on the deck, yes, there's just a little bit more to pay attention to. And when the sail is up, there are more things that can go wrong than if you didn't have a sail. I highly encourage, if somebody's interested in a sail, is getting with somebody who's got some experience, whether it's you know a coach or a course or just another paddler who's got some experience to help you sort things as you're learning be very very helpful um, in Australia that's just where the sale the sales that I had uh, come across that's where they were kind of reborn so I was in Australia to do some coaching and the boat that I was loaned had a sail on it and uh, at first I accused my benefactor of trying to kill me <laughs> and he assured me that no 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 we do this all the time <laughs> <laughs> Uh, just showed me a few safety pointers and I went out and practiced with it and practiced rolling, capsizing, releasing the sail, rolling up. If you do it a certain way and roll slowly, you can actually roll with the sail still 
the mast still up and the, the sheet release so that the sail follows the mast on around. So I became comfortable with that. And I met the designer and builder of the sails who was trying to get into the North American market. That was Mick McRobb with his flat earth sails. And uh, I said, yeah, I'll, I'll see what I can do, but I definitely want to develop a training program around the sails because I, I knew there's some some fear about them and also a little bit of safety. And if it's not part of the common culture, uh, I think it's best to have some training with it. So I made an effort to go around in my travels around the U.S. to different symposiums and events. I brought sales. Uh, my business partner at the time, Mark Whitaker, helped develop, we call them the sticky pod mount, these industrial suction cups that are designed to hold movie cameras on race cars. It's like a, a plaque with four of those to hold the mast on the bow of a kayak so that people could try out a sail on their own boat without having to drill holes in it. Hmm. So bring those to symposiums so people could try, and then I could train coaches and instructors who could then have just a small fleet of sails to use to, to teach where they were. And the idea was to kind of build some centers where sailing could be taught and then have bases where, where people could buy the sails. That, that didn't really take off as much as I had hoped it would. All right. <laughs> uh, but we, here in Baja, we have our fleet of, most of our kayaks have sails on them. And we just, because they're our own boats, we drill the holes and mount the sails directly on the, the boat. So you can take the sail off. It just leaves a little base that's like one less than a centimeter high up at the bow of the boat and two little jam cleats back towards the cockpit. Um, but in Australia, there are some clubs whose more challenging trips require participants to use sails. They see sails as a safety device. Interesting. It's an auxiliary power. If you just need to, if the wind comes up or somebody's injured and you just need to get somewhere, raft two kayaks up, put up at least one sail, and you can go, even without like really steering or paddling, you can go not quite across the wind, but at a big spectrum of directions downwind. That can be super helpful. We're talking earlier about Baja, and uh, you just mentioned it again, so let's come back to Baja. Um, I'd love to hear some more about your home waters. What are, your, what are some of your favorite places to paddle in and around uh, Loreto? Oh, I still haven't gotten tired of 24 years of paddling in the Loreto National Marine Park. And there's always something new to see and experience out here. During COVID, we started paddling the nine miles straight across to Carmen Island, which is a mile, an island that's 17 miles long, straight out front of Loreto. When we do our commercial trips, we'll drive south and launch where the crossings are shorter. They're a couple of miles long there. Um, but when we were under quarantine and, and couldn't drive anywhere, we just put the kayaks on a cart <laughs> and walked it to the beach, hid the cart, and snuck away by uh, by kayak. So a nine-mile crossing has sort of become like our backyard. And you know, on that crossing, we've seen blue whales, fin whales, humpback whales, dolphins of various kinds, sea turtles, sea lions, um, different kind of petrels that you don't really see near the shore. The, those are seabirds, and they tend to nest in the northern gulf up here. Uh, red-tailed tropic birds, blue-footed boobies. That sounds terrible for a wildlife lover. <laughs> it's just awful. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and you had mentioned earlier about, you talked about some reefs. Yeah. There's one reef that's just north of the park. It's about a five-hour paddle north, and it's uh, on some of the charts for sailors as a hazard, and I'd heard about it. I was 
paddling back from one of my training runs uh, for crossing the Gulf, and I just noticed this funny texture to the water. Uh, I paddled over to check it out, and so it's like this current kind of upwelling against this reef, and one little rock sticking up where the waves were breaking. Took some ranges on it and marked it on my GPS and uh, paddle back there whenever I can to take some pictures of the, the corals and the fish and just check it out. There aren't coral reefs. Like the, the coral doesn't grow reefs this far north in the Sea of Cortez because the water's a little too cold. The furthest north reef that there is is in Cabo Pulmo, uh, which is south of La Paz. Um, some six or seven hour drive south of here. But we do get coral heads or coral knobs uh, and then uh, in the rocky reefs. So we get uh, bits of coral in the rocky reefs here, which is kind of cool. You get the soft coral, the, the sea fans and the gorgonians, and you get the stony coral, the, I'm going to say this wrong, <laughs> but it's <laughs> Posilipera and the porites, the two different kinds of stony coral that we get around here that I've been documenting the changes. We've had some bleaching events and some algae takeover events and then some recovery. And right now the Pusillipera are about half and half between it, taken over by algae and healthy, but at least they're, they're healthy again. They're not white anymore. And they think here that it's not warm water. They think it's a cold water bleaching or maybe a pH imbalance. But we've been documenting uh, the corals through photographs for a few years now. So is, is all the paddling there, um, this idyllic flat water, beautiful coral and wildlife, or do you get a variety of paddling? It's a variety. Um, this body of water between the Baja Peninsula and mainland Mexico uh, depends on what it's doing that day, uh, whether you call it the Sea of Cortez when it's rough or the Gulf of California when it's placid. <laughs> Steinbeck started that idea in his uh, log from the Sea of Cortez. In the winter, the weather pattern to keep your eye out for is the norte, and norte just means north. It's the north wind. The, the Baja Peninsula is oh, about a thousand miles long, so the Sea of Cortez, like the yin-yang of water land, is a thousand mile long funnel of wind when you've got high pressure in Southern California and low pressure in Southern Mexico, it just sets up this funnel, which can blow 15 knots for two or three days. It can blow up to 40 knots, rarely, but you know, once every couple of years or so, you get a 40 knot event. Even 15 knots with that long of a fetch, Loretto is about 600 miles of fetch from the north, can set up some pretty interesting conditions and then when you put the islands, just the way Carmen Island sits with the coast, it makes a funnel from nine miles across at the north end down to five miles across uh, at the south end. And then that's that small crossing at the south end. Little Danzante Island sits right in the middle of that, making those constrictions even tighter. And to make it even more interesting, in the winter, the currents, the, the currents in the Sea of Cortez are less tidal that's going in and out with the tides and more spin-offs of ocean gyres. So there's a count, no, a clockwise gyre that affects the Loretto Islands in the winter. So the current at most of the points flows northward in the winter most of the time. There's no tide charts in the area. This is just observation, local knowledge, talking with other people who've been here a long time. So when you have that current Nothing since 1875, north, right? 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the current flowing north and you know hitting those those points of Carmen Island, Danzante, and Punta Cayote, which is on the coast. You've got the constriction, the wind against tide. Um, so you can get some some fun surfing kinds of conditions off of some of those points in the north winds. So you do have it all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now winter. What's uh. When you say winter, you know, what, what are we talking for temperatures, water temperature and air temperature? Air temperature doesn't go below freezing. And we know this because the Cardone cacti, which is the southern relative of the saguaro, cannot tolerate freezing temperatures and they grow here. All right. But certain places at night, um, it, can get, it can get down into the 30s in Fahrenheit. Not often. Um, but the, the desert normally doesn't have cloud cover, so the heat leaves in the night. There's a big temperature difference between day and night. And when we have the north wind also, that brings some cold air down. Um, and during the day, so like during the day, I'll paddle in like a lightweight long sleeve shirt and shorts. If it's windy and I'm playing in such a way to be getting wet a lot, like uh, you know, the surf beach, I'll probably wear a paddle jacket and maybe another warm layer. And then at night when I'm camping, it'll be, oh, a fleece, a jacket, a warm hat, socks. <laughs> so I'll kind of bundle up. And uh, in the summer, most people don't paddle in the summer unless they live here already or they come from really hot climates. The summer can be hot and humid. The summer's a really good time to spend time snorkeling from your kayak. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now you mentioned yeah, you, you mentioned that earlier that you'll uh, t tell us a little bit about the snorkeling from your kayak. So paddling to a remote point and you know it's hot out, so you jump in the water to cool off. So I keep on my my back deck handy for such emergencies, a uh, mask and snorkel and my fins, and I've got my tow belt handy. So uh, it takes a little bit of of balance, <laughs> and it's slightly comical to take off the sandals and put off the put on the flippers while kind of sitting on the back deck with your flippers in the water. You've got the mask and snorkel on. You've got the tow belt on. Slip into the water. Then I put the life jacket secure with the paddle secure, and uh, swim to the bow of my boat. Clip the tow line on the deck line up there. I think it's sort of ironic that I'll. You know, wear faithfully wear a life jacket while paddling, and then get in the water and take it off. But that's <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to free dive if you have a life jacket on. It is. Yeah, and just kind of watch out that the flippers don't get caught around the, the tow line. But yeah, swim swim with the kayak, dive down usually with the camera. And it's uh, yeah, it's cool. It just gets you some remote places that you wouldn't otherwise snorkel. Yeah, so and helps you cool off when you're kayaking. Great side weather. benefit. So tell us a little bit more about Sea Kayak Baja Mexico. Sea Kayak Baja Mexico started, what was it, 14 years ago? To meet the need or the interest of paddling enthusiasts, like people who wanted a little bit more adventure, single kayaks, especially British-style single kayaks, um, trips for people with experience. And they just, they weren't available uh, at the time. So I started running a few. And we just kept growing. I really only intended to do like maybe five or seven trips a year and just run them myself. But um, now we've got a team of 12 guides, a fleet of over 50 boats. We run expeditions, which are not motor supported. So we put everything that we have 
that we're going to need for the trip in the kayaks, water, food, camping gear, and paddle from place to place. That's our expedition-style trips. Uh, we team up with Sea Trek in Sausalito to run their motor-supported trips, which are a little bit more um, luxury, and so you've got a cooler full of cold beer or whatever beverage you want on the, the beach every night. You've got a kind of stand-up chair and table and a motor support if you uh, wanted to you know, jump in it and, and go see the dolphins or something as they're going by. Uh, then we also do some rentals for people with experience at different levels. So we've got expedition rentals. So somebody has the experience in Mexico and experience making those judgment calls to just rent a boat and go. Um, off they go. And then we've also got the one island rental where we take folks out to the island in a motorboat and you just paddle that island and we'll come pick you up in a different place on that island. It kind of limits the, the risk exposure a little bit. And we've got one beach rental, which is... We'll take you to the beach. Here's your water toys. Don't go anywhere. Have fun. <laughs> we'll come pick you up in a couple days. Um, courses. We've got courses from introduction to um, surfing wind waves, to sailing, to rolling, to multi-day courses, um, to courses in the structure of a trip, such as Learning in Paradise as a six-day trip um, with your sea paddler training kind of rolled into it. We've got six-day sea paddler training, which goes out each day and looks for those conditions. We've got sea leader training. We've got an expedition rolled into a sea leader training or an assessment. And we've been working with a local club, forming a local club, to open opportunities for local paddlers to get on the water, for local people to connect um, with nature, develop a, a care for it, and um, you know, protect it. That's, that's kind of one of the goals. And the other goal is to give an opportunity for our developing leaders, guides, and coaches a way to practice, to build up their skills. So mentoring local paddlers to become coaches and guides in Mexico. So it's much more than a, much more than a, than a touring company. It's, uh, it's become a, a force in the community. Yeah. That's I mean, great. We've teamed up with some um, local environmental groups the Nature Squad, Escuadrón de la Naturaleza, uh, is a, a group of teenagers formed by the local Eco Alianza organization for d developing future leaders in the community in environmentalism and care. And we've been taking them out onto the water. And that's been really rewarding. Awesome. Well, nice, nice work. Congratulations on, on building a great business. So, Thanks. So how can listeners reach you if they want to learn more? We have an extensive website with lots of pictures. It is seakayakbaja.com. And Baja is B-A-J-A dot com. That's probably the best way to find us. All right. Well, I will make sure that I put uh, links to seakayakbaja.com in, uh, in the show notes. And you give me a couple of other references here, so I'll include those in the in the show notes, as well as a link to something called a pyrosome. If I try to probably <laughs> pronounce that wrong, but um. no, you're, you're just right. Yeah, <laughs> but it sounds cool. I'm definitely going to look that up myself, and uh, and I've learned learned stuff today as well. And uh, I appreciate your time, um, Jenny. I've got one last question for you, and that question is: Who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. I have a list of people who I think would really be awesome to chat with. Deb Falterno, uh, who is a tsunami ranger and a coach 
and just a very articulate woman and um, just wonderful support for people in the community. So Deb Volturno, All right. Michael Powers, also Tsunami Ranger, and just a, a man of soul for sure. Jennifer Yearly, Paddling on the Pacific and, and Coaching, a five-star and a very good writer. Uh, Sean Morley, an amazing paddler, yeah. a very interesting human being. Jen Kleck, she's been running the Baja Kayak Fest in Ensenada for several years. And you know, she ran a company in San Diego uh, for a while as well. She's an excellent, excellent coach and very fun person. Tony, he goes by Tony de Baja. He's the guy who invented or created the desalinator that fits in the kayak. Oh, yeah. His adventures in Baja. He would be really fun to talk to. All right. You said he had a lot of great um, uh, you know, wildlife adventures, documentation, and research, too? Yeah, like whale sharks and mobulas, which are a kind of ray. Really finding out things that people didn't know because um, it's hard to research these things. But if you're wandering around in a kayak, you end up bumping into a lot of wildlife in the Sea of Cortez, turns out. Cool. Should I go on? Sure. You got more. That's great. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Patrice Duval. Uh, he's a, a Frenchman, and he had a, a company in French Polynesia for a while, and he's, he's back in France, and he and his wife just love to travel and explore. Uh, he's just power energy. <laughs> he's just so enthusiastic about life. He would be really fun to chat with. Um, All right. Oscar Chalupski. If you've ever competed or been interested in like surf ski in South Pacific, Oscar has won more races than anybody. He's, yeah, he's just a really decent, accessible human being. He's available on, on Facebook. He's battling cancer right now, but just still getting out there once in a while and paddling and racing while he can and encouraging a tremendous uh, community of surf ski racers. I've seen him uh, here and there on Facebook, yes. Yeah. Nigel Dennis, to whom I owe a great debt of, um, of thanks for actually getting Sea Kayak Baja Mexico started. He's, I was over in the UK, and I just got my five-star, and he comes up and says, well, you know Mexico, right? <laughs> he said, why don't you um, <laughs> order some kayaks, and I'll make you a Nigel Dennis Expedition Center and put you on the website. I'm like, that sounds great, Nigel. How much does one of those cost? And how much the minimum? I'm like, That's more than my annual income. He says, tell you what, tell me what sticks you want. I'll send them to you. Pay them off when you can. And that's how wow. I got started. So thank you, Nigel. And I paid him off, cool. by the way. So Nigel, if you're listening, here you are. <laughs> Abram Levy, Mexican who's paddled the entire coast of Mexico. Um, and I think was paddling across the Atlantic as well. Just an adventurer, a highly entertaining fellow. Let's see. And I've got, oh, Bob Fergie is a paddling pastor in Melbourne who has been a lot of years since I've bumped into him, but um, he's a really decent human being and a lot of fun. And I've got a few guys here, here in Baja who are also um, kind of world travelers, um, articulate people um, and community members, such as Ramon Alvarado, Jorge Soto, and Isaura Colunga, who would be good interviews as well. Well, you've given me a lot of really great names. And uh, a lot of people that would be really interesting to, to speak with. So I will definitely connect with you offline. We'll uh, work on getting in touch with these folks. And I would love to have a chance to talk to them. Um, it's been fantastic talking to you and learning about, uh, about Baja and about your adventures there. And, uh, and I just appreciate your time and appreciate what you're doing down there. And uh, I will look forward to the opportunity someday to see you down in Baja and paddle together. Well, John, I look forward to that day. It's been great chatting with you. Keep up your great work. 
I love your podcast and uh, happy paddling. Thank you. Thank you. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or white water, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit paddlingexercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. Well, that certainly makes me want to head down to Baja this winter. Snorkeling offshore reefs from my kayak certainly sounds like great fun. I know I've never heard of a pirate zone before, so if that's new to you as well, visit the show notes at www.paddlingtheblue.com to read a little more. And while you're there, visit Sikai Baja, Mexico, and see what Ginny has to offer. Our next episode will take us to Scotland to have a chat with Doug Cooper, and Doug's going to tell us about some of his favorite places and why he's perfectly content exploring the coast of Scotland rather than going anywhere else in the world. Thanks, as always, for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.